got your Bible, let's turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. And we are going to be looking at the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 3. And if you would uh, stand with me, we'll read those verses in an opening prayer. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1, likewise, ye wives be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good night. Thank you, Lord, for the truths of the word of God. Lord, I pray as we study tonight that you, through your blessed Holy Spirit, would provide illumination for us, Father, that we would understand uh, and be able to make application to our walk so that when we leave here tonight, uh, we will be impacted by what we heard walking differently than when we arrived. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. All right, so, so we're, we're going to move on into chapter 3 this week, uh, and we're still continuing that same conversation, which is uh, Peter, uh, for the latter portion of chapter 2, all of chapter 3 and the first few verses of chapter 4, it is a charge to uh, the believers concerning their connections or their relationships, um, and it's written specifically to those that are born again. Over the past several verses, starting back in chapter 3, I believe, verse 17 or so, uh, we've looked at uh, our relationships with the world at large. We've uh, considered our place in society. That is, we are pilgrims and sojourners. And we also looked at uh, our contention with the flesh and with non-believers. Then just last week or the last time we were together on Wednesday night, we looked at our relationship to the governing powers that be, so the government. Uh, and we looked at how uh, those relationships should be understanding that God is sovereign, that God has placed them. No one uh, rises to power without uh, the foreknowledge, foreknowledge and the ordination of God. And so we, we looked at our relationship with those powers that be. We also looked at our working relationships. We talked about 
the apostle, or excuse me, Peter talks about uh, the, the relationship between the slave and the master. But that is just our working relationship. And once again, what we discover <clears throat> in all these relationships, in all cases, is that God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, when we are submitting unto the powers that be, we're actually submitting unto God. And so it's not, a, it's not an issue of weakness or wimpiness or one person lording over another. It is that we are accepting that God is sovereign and that God has placed us in a certain place and a certain uh, uh, ability and a certain faculty for a certain period of time. And our job is to fulfill that role and submit unto the powers that be. And when we do that, we're submitting unto God. You'll remember that we quoted Lyle, uh, who stated that the ultimate Christian answer to persecution, detractors and critics, is that of a blameless life. Remember Daniel. Conduct beyond reproach and good citizenship. In particular, submission is a supremely Christ-like virtue. I want you to think about that latter statement there. In particular, submission is an extremely or a supremely Christ-like virtue. And uh, this written to a group of people, and, and the group of people I'm referring to are the born again, and that is those that are here today uh, in this world today, who are constantly saying, well, I want to be Christ-like. Well, the most supreme factor of Christ-likeness is in submitting, just as the Lord Jesus submitted. So as we continue looking at relationships or connections of the born again, we're going to look to um, marriage and the interaction between husbands and wife, or as it is relative to or as it concerns the marriage relationship. And what we just read, if, if we... Uh, read that correctly, if you heard it as we read it, is very specific to husbands and wives. It is also still, as is the case with these last few verses and the next few, very specific to the born again. And so we are looking at this idea of the relationship between a husband and wife. And I, I want to say this, and uh, I think anybody in here that's married would agree with this, this husband and wife relationship is probably, uh, in fact, it is without a doubt, the most challenging and yet the most rewarding of all relationships. There is no other relationship wherein two people become one. That doesn't happen anywhere except for in marriage. The two become one. There's no other relationship that is set as a type of the church. And the marriage is set as a type of the church. The husband-wife relationship is a type of the Christ relationship, Christ relationship with the church. There's no other relationship like that. There is no other relationship that is so attacked by the flesh or by the cosmos, the world system that we participate in and by Satan. No other relationship is attacked by those three foes as much as the marriage relationship. And each of those enemies are actively seeking to separate, 
to divide and destroy the marriage. In fact, Satan would love to see the institution of marriage done away with completely because the institution of marriage is the oldest institution in the world. It is the first institution ordained by God and it is the literal backbone of, of America, of the church, of a moral society. Marriage is that important. And so we, we understand that's the type of relationship that Peter is speaking to here. We also uh, comprehend that the key word in these verses is submission once again. Notice first you see that the wife is mentioned. Likewise, you wives. The, it's interesting that out of the seven verses here, six appear to be addressed to the wife. And one to the husband. And, and so we might would throw some antenna up there and, and you know, think about what is, what is that indicative of? Is it indicative of more responsibility or a more important role or, or anything like that? But when you turn over to Ephesians 5, it's, it's inverted. There's more to the husband than there is to the wife. And so I think it is driven by the occasion and by the, the principle that he is trying to establish in this passage, which I would believe is uh, in my heart is probably not what you would first uh, think it is. In each category of this conversation, Peter has directed his instruction to the end that others may see Christ in you. All right, so I want to make sure that was clear. When he was talking about how we relate to the world around us, it is so that the world around us would see Christ. When he's talking about how we relate to the powers that be, it is so that the powers that be would see Christ in us. When he's talking about how servants and masters or employees, employers uh, communicate and relate to one another, it's so that Christ might be revealed in that relationship. And so all the way through, that's been the aim is that Christ would be seen in the relationship. And so it's no different here when he's talking these first seven verses to husbands and wives, he is driving to the point that Christ might be seen in you, whether, whether you're the wife or the husband, uh, that Christ might be seen in, in verse 15 of the previous chapter, if you'll look there, uh, we saw this a few weeks ago. It says, for so is the will of God that with well-doing, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Can I tell you that one of the strongest evangelistic tools that are that is available to the church are rock-solid, God-centered, appropriate marriages that are not only in the church, but is shown in the community and are participating in the schools, and they're around. And people see those relationships. And that Christ is revealed in that relationship. So again, we see this passage. It says, likewise, uh, likewise ye wives. And so we would say, okay, what is the likewise? Why, why would he say, all right, also to you wives? That's what likewise means. So if we trace the reference for that, 
we would look back at verse 13 of the previous chapter. Remember, it says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king or as, a, or as supreme. And he goes on, but you're submitting to every ordinance of man. Why? For the Lord's sake. And if you come down uh, to verse 18, he says again, servants be subject to your masters with all fear. And that there's a thread that runs all the way down to uh, verse uh, 21, where it says, For even un hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered. Do you see that? And so we, we understand that we're to be subject uh, to the ordinance, ordinances uh, as unto the Lord. And that we are uh, to be subject to one another, because Christ suffered for all. And then when he says, likewise, you wives... He's connecting back to that thread. The way that it would come on down and say that, that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He suffered. He threatened not. He committed himself to him that judges righteously. And then right into that, likewise also, you wives. So we understand there's no skipping theme. He's still talking about our relationship with Christ as it affects our relationship with one another, this in particular in the marriage. So his first order of business, uh, as we look at uh, this passage, is to win the lost. And specifically, the lost husbands. He sees the most effective method of this evangelistic need to be a believing wife. So look what it says there. Likewise, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word, here you go, there's a husband that's not a believer. They also may be without the word, may also without the word be won by the conversation, conduct. The, the word there is an astrophe. It means conduct or behavior or how you carry yourself of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. So the idea here is uh, if, if they don't obey the word, they're not a follower of Christ, they're not a believer, they might by your conduct, by your good behavior, uh, by, by your uh, 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 way of life, they might become a believer. It's interesting that 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 would be Peter's first approach. But this is the thing. That's been his approach the whole time. Why are we subject to the government? So people will see Christ in us. Why are we faithful to our husband or faithful to our wife or subjected to our wife or our husband or, or uh, loving our wife as Christ loved the church? Why are we doing that? So that Christ would be revealed in that situation. This is what you call lifestyle evangelism. And lifestyle evangelism, the way it should be displayed in the home. This is the unfortunate truth. And I, I doubt very seriously that we have many in here tonight that this would apply to. But you know somebody, and it may have been you in the past. And I believe in other relationships, you may be guilty of this anyway. I know that sometimes I am. The unfortunate truth is that often we preach at. Or to our friends and family rather than just love them the way that Christ would. So 
That doesn't mean that you don't share the gospel. I, I think that uh, everyone should have the gospel shared with them. But what it, what it means is that while you share the gospel and while you share biblical truths, when you're in a long-held, sustained relationship, in this case, husband and wife, you have to realize that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict and to draw the lost unto the Lord. We would never, for example, go knocking doors <clears throat> in a desire to share the gospel, knock on the door, get somebody to come to the door, and share the gospel with them, and then demand that they make a decision right on the spot. And then when they choose the wrong decision, harangue them into shame and anger until they no longer want to even have a discussion with you. We wouldn't do that. It would be counterproductive. What would we do? We would take a soft approach. We would present the gospel. If they declined or denied the gospel, we would seek to establish a relationship with them. So that we could continue speaking to them and sharing with them and modeling for them. That's the, that would be the approach that the normal uh, person would take. But, but what happens is oftentimes in the house, uh, we share the gospel, uh, whether it be with, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends at work, whatever. And then when they don't, they don't go immediately to your way of belief. Man, you just go ahead and condemn them to hell. Or you preach at them until they, they can't stand to be in your presence. Or you continue to nag at them. And he's, he's giving this idea uh, to the wives that look, uh, share the gospel. But most importantly, model the gospel. Uh, I've read these stories. I'm confident that you have. It's not uncommon to read a story where there's two unbelievers in a household and one of them gets saved. Could be husband, could be wife. In fact, I believe the uh, Lee Strobel story is pretty much like this. She, she uh, through a series of events, began uh, became a believer, started attending Hyvel's church, and, and she shared with him, uh, but... The thing that really got him was she changed. She was different. Her attitude was different. Her personality was different. Everything was different. And, and it just, in the beginning, it frustrated him. But the longer he watched, the more he realized something happened. That's what this passage is speaking of. And, and we read those stories. As you've heard others say, you're not their Holy Spirit. You can't convict them and, and you're not going to be the one that converts them. Uh, God help them if you are. Because it probably won't last the hard time. So this also speaks to the question though. Um, the, of What should happen if you marry a non-believer? And uh, so there's arguments out there. And they're, and they're just that. They're just to create contention that would say uh, Paul strictly forbids the the union of a believers and non-believers be you not unequally yoked and they would say well peter is advocating for that but truthfully what peter is advocating for here is two individuals who are lost and married and one of them becomes a believer 
He's not advocating for being unequally yoked. A believer should never marry an unbeliever. That's not something that's going to be easily changed. If you are a believer and you want to marry that person, you better pray them into the Lord's presence. But what he's talking about here is you have these two people that one of them uh, becomes a believer, a follower of Christ. And then the question is, well, do I divorce or do I separate until they become a believer? But according to this passage, Peter's saying, no, stay in there. Because your, your speech, your conduct, your behavior, your character may win them. Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 7, verses 12 through 16. He would say, but to, to the rest, speak I not the Lord, not the, speak I not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. Through that passage, he goes on and flips it around. If the, if the husband's a non-believer and he's confident or he's comfortable to stay in the relationship, let him stay in the relationship. He goes on to say that if the non-believer uh, decides to leave the believer, the believer's free. They're clear of any trouble. But not to divorce just for, the, just for the simple fact that one becomes a believer and the other is not. That's the right thing to do. Stay in the relationship and lead them to salvation. And this through relationship and modeling rather than preaching and nagging. So there's a principle here because everybody right now is thinking, why is he talking about all this? There's a principle. It is, I think the same principle, for example, applies to our adult children. I have a hard time saying that word. I have two adult children. And many of you have adult children. Same principle applies. We can, we can do great harm to relationships and endanger future opportunities if we forget whose job salvation is or whose job sanctification is. But if we, through love, continue to participate in their lives and live right in front of them and we continue to invest... We possibly see the Lord do a great work one day. We possibly see the Lord bring one back around. I know very few people. I, I'm not going to say I don't know any because unfortunately in the independent Baptist movement, especially in the 70s and 80s, I know people that banned their kids. And uh, God won't be pleased with that. Family is your first ministry. But I know very few people that's willing to walk away from a child. And it ought to be that way, not only with the child, it ought to be that way with a spouse. It, it ought to be that way with an aunt, an uncle. It ought to be that way with your neighbor, right? We, it's not an argument that we're trying to win. It's a life that we're trying to save. And, and so we stay in the relationship. And that's really what Peter is talking about here. Modeling in that relationship, that that behavior that how you conduct yourself in such a way as to win them to the Lord. Look at verse three. Verse three said, who's adorning? Talking about these, these wives, uh, this wife who has chased conversation and coupled with fear, this wife who is presenting a right conversation, who's adorning, let it not be 
that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. This is a, another a passage that's been butchered over the years. Um, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if somebody don't fuss at me before the night is over by what I'm about to say. Uh, this, this passage, the adorning is speaking of display. Is speaking of what is seen. And so it's, it is pointing to outward display. But oftentimes somebody takes that purely literal. And so <clears throat> uh, over the years they've made it uh, the very antithesis, honestly, of what Peter's intentions were. So over the years this idea of braiding hair and jewelry and fine clothing all over the years that's been painted as almost harlotry i mean it just uh, you know the the next thing to, to standing on the street corner i mean they just painted it to look horrible and they've done so with this passage and that's the complete antithesis of what peter was saying in fact what peter was saying was uh it's not about the outward appearance good or bad so it's not, it's not that if you plate the hair and, and all of the adorning things, you're bad. Or if you don't, you're bad, you're good. It has nothing to do with that. He's specifically stating, don't let it be that type of a display. Because that display is all aesthetics. It means nothing. It, it has no internal value. So he's specifically saying that true beauty radiates from a right heart and a right spirit and that this is seen by God quite irrespective of the outward appearance that this in no way is meant to promote a worldly appearance or a non-worldly appearance. There's other verses, there's other passages that would tell us to come out from among the world. There's other passages that would talk to us about modesty without misappropriating this passage, which is talking about having a right heart and a right spirit. And so uh, this idea of, of uh, what he's speaking to, this concept, is a much greater concept than mere appearance. And that's the point. Peter is pointing to the things that make a person, in this case, specifically a wife, attractive to the carnal man. Well, I'm saying carnal man as in the natural man, the flesh. And so he's pointing to those things and he's saying these things don't matter as much as the things that make a person attractive to God. That's the point of the passage. So this is the, the, the greater implication for a minute Get your mind off of the idea of physical appearance and get back onto the concept of conduct and character because that's the point. That's the context he's writing the passage in. He's not talking about looks, he's talking about behavior. And so when we start thinking about conduct and character, 
uh, I want to say this, and, and look, I'm implicated here, so I hope I don't hurt your feelings too bad, but we all have a little bit of Pharisee in us. Everybody does. And so this is the Pharisee. The Pharisee were known for their hypocrisy. And this is what their hypocrisy, hypocrisy means play acting. It means to, to be duplicitous. You act one way and you are another or vice versa. And so uh, this is what they had. They had long white robes. They had uh, fringes around the bottom of the robes, bells around the bottoms of the robes. So everywhere they went, they drew attention. They had phylacteries around their heads, big metal, uh, excuse me, leather boxes with scriptures in them. Uh, and they loved to make long public prayer real loud where everybody else could hear it. That was their appearance. That's what they put out there so that everyone can see. That is how they wanted to be adorned. To them, that was adornment. Just like to the lady, it may have been the plaited hair and, the, and all of those things. To them, this was what they wanted everyone to see. This was the adornment. This was the, the appearance to those who were watching. And this is what the Lord Jesus said to them. He called them white-washed sepulchers. He said that they were filthy dishes because they were only concerned with the outward appearance and the inside of the cup was disgusting. He said that inside themselves they were ravenous wolves, they're full of dead men's bones, and they were dirty cups stained from use. That's what Christ called that appearance of those Pharisees. So we have developed these ideas and concepts of what a quote-unquote spiritual person looks like. And we've begun implementing that behavior so that we appear a certain way, but the heart is not right. The spirit is not right. The mind is not right. Peter is just using the wife as an example. But he's talking to every born again believer. Man and woman. And this is what he's saying. And, and this is really dumbed down language. But it's, it's just the truth. We must be real. We must be right inside to be accepted to God. And we must be a true representation of ourselves. Because those closest to you. Your husband. Your wife. The kids that live in the house with you, those that are watching you all the time, they know. They know exactly what you are. And so our public appearance is not going to win them if it's contradictory to our private actions. The other day, I had got some work done on my truck. And uh, so I'm an old mechanic. I don't have any trouble walking into a shop and carrying on a conversation with a mechanic. Uh, I, I just I grew up, I was 16 years old when I started working in a shop and I worked around them until I was 40 years old. So it's no problem. Most of them are foul mouth. It's no problem. Uh, people will say, I can't believe uh, you let them talk like that in front of you. Well, it's vocabulary, man. It's what they know how to say. <laughs> it's, it's, it's what they, that's their speech. And so I was having this conversation with this guy the other day, and he was typical, old hippie, 
and typical mechanic, and we were having a good conversation. I actually enjoyed talking to him, but it was pretty spicy. I mean, he was, he was utilizing his best vocabulary, and it wasn't very good. And my son came in to get me. I called him and said, hey, come pick me up. And so uh, Carter walks in, and we're standing there. This guy's just going on and uh, carrying on, and I'm carrying on with him. I mean, I wasn't using the same language, but we was getting the conversation on the road, having a good time. Got in the truck. We go to leave, and Carter says, Dad, doesn't that bother you? And uh, I said, what? He said, the way that guy was talking. I said, man, that's just vocabulary. That's his, that's his talk. I mean, if he knew other words to use, he'd use them. It's just his vocabulary. I don't judge people by the vocabulary they, they use because they don't know any better. That's what they, I used to talk the same way. Uh, Carter says to me, you know, Dad, uh, you're different because most everybody else would judge that guy the way he talked. Now, I'm not telling you that because I'm different, because there's other things he could do that I'd judge him for. I got a little Pharisee in me too. What I'm telling you is that my 22-year-old, who I would love to see have a closer walk with the Lord, saw that. And to him, what it said was, my dad is the same in front of this guy as he is in front of that guy at church. He's accepting. It's that is what Peter is talking about. Peter is talking about presenting the same picture so that your kids don't get 25 years old and think, you know, my dad was a hypocrite and so I'm just not going to be that way. That's the, the picture that he's painting here. So look at verse 5. We'll keep moving. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So we're back to speaking about wives. And what Peter's doing here is he's saying, listen, there's examples of this all through the scriptures. The holy women of old, this is how they adorned themselves. They adorned themselves by being in subjection to their husbands, which meant they were in subjection to the Lord. And doing those things that they were supposed to do. And then he says, uh, he says, Sarah, uh, the way Sarah did, she called Abraham Lord. That's a small L-O-R-D. That's a, a term of uh, authority, not a term of deity. And, and he's saying that she was in complete subjection to him. Now, this is, this is the challenge that I would give you because uh, you're not Jew young Jewish women. This is what this would say to young Jewish women. Uh, I would challenge you to go through the scriptures and find a derogatory phrase or word about Sarah written in the scriptures. Because there's not one. There's one time where Sarah, hiding behind the tent door, heard the angel of the Lord saying to Abraham that your wife is going to bear and give birth. And she laughed because she was 90 years old. And the Lord said unto her, why do you laugh? Is anything too hard for God? And she lied and said, I didn't laugh. That's the extent of the bad things. There's no derogatory thing about Sarah. Were there derogatory things about Sarah? Well, sure they were. She lived in the flesh. But 
to the Jewish, young Jewish women, which is Peter's writing to Jewish believers, she would have been the epitome of the perfect wife. And, and he's saying, this is how she was adorned. This is how she became that way. And you are, spiritually speaking, a daughter of hers. If you trace your lineage or your spiritual lineage, in this case, back to Abraham, you're a daughter of hers. And so you can be that way as well. And so these examples, the point is, these examples exist for all believers. We see great leaders in the Bible, and every time we see them, we see them warts and all. David was a warmongering adulterer. That's what David was. But he was repentant and he had a heart for God and he was a man after God's own heart. So that tells me uh, not that I can go be a warmongering adulterer, but it tells me that if David, with all that he had going on, could go after God and be a man after God's own heart, so can I. It, these examples that are in front of us and it's and the idea is that they were not perfect. They weren't even special for that matter. Rather, they were honest with themselves and they were honest with God. And that's what is required is that we're honest with ourselves and we're God, with God and that we are real. We are genuine and true to who we are in Christ in all walks of life, no matter who we're in front of. It's that integrity conversation what you do when nobody's looking because somebody's always looking so we we have this idea if your friends and family would not recognize the sunday morning version of yourself <laughs> you have some work to do and listen there's good quote unquote church folks that you wouldn't recognize if you saw them elsewhere. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're lost. It, it means that they're carnal and they're not walking in truth and they're not walking in the spirit. And, and by the way, uh, that's not, this is not an instance wherein you act as if, uh, as if you please flippantly, uh, you know, it's not where you say, well, that's me, lock it or lump it. That's, it's not that. There, there ought to be continual, constant growth and improvement in your person. And from a, from a spiritual perspective, it ought to continue until the day you die. There ought to be a continual growth. You know, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. You've heard, you've read that before where Paul says that? You know who else said that? Papa. Right? But one of those was saying, I'm the chief of sinners saved and called. And I am what I am by the grace of God. And the other one was telling me, uh, you just adjust to who I am because I am what I am. I would say this, if what you are is not unto the glory of God, please don't blame it upon the grace of God. 
If what you do doesn't stand up to his glory, then don't blame it on him that you're the way you are. You've chosen that. Look at verse 7 and we'll finish up here as quickly as I can. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. Again, we see the likewise. This connects the husbands back to the entire thread of Christ likeness and doing it so unto the Lord that just as we submit to the local ordinance for the Lord's sake, just as servants are subject to the masters because Christ suffered, husbands are to dwell with the wife considerately and in understanding and honor, protect them as the weaker vessel. This is a command under the believing husband. That's the, the responsibility. If we, if we could extrapolate that, we would say any husband who does anything less is an infidel. That'd be pretty strong language. But it would be factual in accordance with this passage. This is what a believing husband does. So there's no excuse, by the way. Uh, we're not doing this for or unto our wife as a husband. Rather, we're doing it unto the Lord. Uh, we're not excused if she's an unbeliever. Or if she's acting like an unbeliever. We're not excused because Paul says, uh, who, What knowest thou? You, you might save your spouse by acting right. We are less than excused. Indeed, we're accountable unto everyone who's watching whether children or neighbor or niece or nephew, because we should adorn ourselves with the right heart and the right spirit. This is in keeping with the passage. We're not excused as if she's the weaker vessel because she is the weaker vessel. And this is the most important statement. He says right there uh, that as being heirs together of the grace of life. You know what's interesting, guys? Your wife received the same grace of God that you did. So you guys are heirs and joint heirs. If you're an heir and a joint heir with Christ, and your wife is a believer, she's an heir and a joint heir with Christ too. And so, and, and, and so we, we see that we have a responsibility, and but, but we're rewarded. Notice he says that your prayers are not hindered. And so that's the idea is that we are rewarded with a powerful and fruitful prayer life. So I would suppose that this is true across the spectrum of all of our relationships. If we treat each person in a considerate way as someone who is important to God as someone who needs salvation or has received salvation as someone who needs protection as someone who deserves honor not only will we be winning the lost and honoring God but we'll be empowering our prayer life that's the gist of this passage the question to you would be how are your connections how are your relationships how is your appearance? Is it true to who you are in Christ? 
I would ask that you meditate on these things this week. Think about how the Lord can use it in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good night. Thank you, Lord, for the truths of God's word. Lord, I pray you'd be with us as we go into our prayer time now. Bless us and strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.